This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast. Earlier today, there was a story that came out that pointed out the, the headline, Toronto Star headline, Canadians as young as 18 could soon be able to legally buy pot. Suggestion is that the Canadian government has decided that it is going to, well, it's proposing that when it legalizes marijuana, that the buying age, the legal age for people to be able to get it is 18. This is in spite of the Canadian Medical Association asking for the age to be 25. They, the, uh, in the Toronto Star, it says that's far lower than the Canadian Medical Association had urged based on fear of damage to teenage brains. Physicians say up to age 25, young brains are susceptible to harm even from occasional pot use. It suggested a strict minimum legal age of 21 could help protect youthful marijuana users while more research is done. So, is the Canadian Medical Association crying wolf? Is the proposal to the government a smart thing, or are we actually walking down a pathway here, potentially, that could be harmful to a lot of young users? Well, Dr. Hans Breiter is a professor professor of psychiatry and behavioral science at Northwestern University in Chicago. Uh, A couple years ago, he was involved in a study on marijuana use among young people. He joins us now. Dr. Breiter, thanks for doing this tonight. Uh, It's wonderful to be with you. When you came out with your study uh, involved, it was with the Harvard University and your university, the headline that Time Magazine used to describe it was recreational pot use harmful to young people's brains. Was that an accurate representation of what you found? I would say yes. Um, And I say yes in the context um, that uh, our study showed alterations in core structures of the brain that are involved with emotion and motivation. And our findings were consistent with the animal literature. They were replicated in another study done by colleagues at Northwestern. And these findings argue that if marijuana is changing a part of the brain in young people of 18 and slightly older age, if, they're, if it's changing the motivational system, there is a kind of a wake-up call. We need to understand what this means, particularly as epidemiologic studies have shown an issue with a motivation and long-term use. And keep in mind, this was with people who were non-dependent or casual users, And there was a continuum between very little use to extensive casual use um, in these findings. So this was just one piece of the story, and it gets at this issue of motivation and the ability to, in a sense, be self-directed going forward. We all have heard about the uh, clinical studies where people show uh, a decrease in motivated behavior. Many parents will relate this. Uh, uh, with regard to their children um, and long-term marijuana exposure through high school and college. But we have to keep this one particular type of data dealing with motivation in mind and combine it with other data, data in particular looking at working memory. 
working memory and, as a sense, the major system that allows you to think, to make decisions, to, uh, to basically to hold all types of data together as you try to solve problems. And working memory also has shown significant problems in individuals who use marijuana. And with working memory, the, the data is pretty conclusive, I, I would actually say, uh, from the long-term studies of people who used it uh, in, in their youth. And then working memory was tested 20, 30 years later and shown to still be abnormal compared to other people who had not used. Um, there, there's a, a, an extensive amount of data, much more uh, in the working memory domain than in the motivation domain. But these two pieces of data, or two types of data, are really problematic. Um, and they get at it. There's one third piece, which has to do with marijuana as a potential gateway drug. Um, and uh, that is far from being resolved, but there does appear to be pretty conclusive data about marijuana being one of a number of different compounds that could be gateways to further drug use. Well, and you know, that's funny. You, it's funny you mention that because that's the first thing that is always poo-pooed by those who would say marijuana is safe. Now, you're um, one of the people who was involved in this study with you, um, Dr. Ann Blood. She's at Harvard Medical School. She said this. This is a quote of hers. This, there is this general perspective out there that using marijuana recreationally is not a problem, that it's a safe drug. We are seeing that this is not the case. And you, you've outlined that there are issues here. So maybe you can, for a second, because I don't think most of us, I don't, and I'm guessing most of the people listening don't really understand what happens physiologically in your brain when you smoke marijuana. What's actually going on with the wiring and with everything in your brain when you're putting that into your body? Well, marijuana is a very interesting plant extract in the context that it has many compounds in it. We've identified one THC that seems to be very important for kind of the, physio, the, 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 the euphoria and the high that one can have with, uh, with smoking uh, marijuana or taking it by, by orally. Uh, but there are other compounds with this, various types of CBDs, we call them, that uh, have very complex effects, and there are dozens of them. Keep in mind that marijuana, uh, that the, the cannabis plant, um, has, has been used by humans over centuries. There's a long history of its use. And it's been used in many different ways. Um, it, it, it echoes what is seen in other types of, of uh, compounds of abuse, such as uh, uh, cocaine. The cocoa plant in, um, in, in South America um, uh, has this extract that, uh, uh, when concentrated, gives us a euphoria. When you look at actually why cocoa is in the plant, uh, all you have to do is look at what happens when larval insects that eat the cocoa plant, um, what happens to them. Uh, they eat enough of the leaf and they fall off and basically uh, die of starvation. Uh, cocoa, uh, cocaine um, was basically developed by the cocoa plant as, in a sense, an, anti, an, an, anti, an insecticide. Um, What's going on with cannabis um, is it has multiple compounds that seem to be um, important for organisms to eat it um, or to use it. And uh, the THC is a positive thing. CBD 
um, is a positive thing for uh, other types of, of, of applications. Uh, and I'm pointing this out in the context that, you know, you get high, you feel good, you want to try it again. Um, it's a way of, in a sense, connecting humans to the plant. Um, there's a wonderful book about this called The Botany of Desire that I'd recommend anybody, uh, uh, people buy and, and read. Um, I'm not related to the writer of it, but it gives a very interesting theory about how plants get connected to humans and how we promote their, in a sense, evolution and development. And he makes a point about cannabis in this context. Um, the, the, the story about the, 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 the cocoa plant is important because it points to why various compounds get developed by uh, uh, plants and for other reasons than necessarily for humans to use them. In the context of cannabis, there are a number of compounds that seem to be very interesting to humans and can be like a, a THC, give us a high, make us feel good. But CBD in various, uh, various forms can actually have anti-epileptic effects and things like this, apparently. So there are many reasons, many interesting pieces about the, the cannabis plant um, that uh, get humans interacting with it. I just raise this as, a, as an interesting issue that we need to explore more and understand better. And with regard to THC, its effect on working memory, its effect on motivation, we need to understand better, especially in the context of youth uh, uh, who have developing brains. Brain development doesn't stop in your late teens or even your early 20s. Uh, for men, it continues in terms of myelination or wrapping of our, of our neurons with a, some, a myelin sheath so that the, the neurons fire better and, 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 fire and, and, and conduct quicker. This, this, um, this type of development continues through the mid to late 30s. Um, and with women, it, it, at least through the mid-30s. Well, and you wrote something, and, and you were quoted again in, in the Time magazine piece when your study was first written about. Uh, I found this very interesting. It said, uh, Brighter and his colleagues found that among the casual marijuana smokers in their study, even the seven who smoked just one joint per week, so a very sporadic, not, not heavy usage user, the nucleus accumbens, did I say that right? Nucleus accumbens and yep. amygdala, two, two different parts of the brain, showed changes in density, volume, and shape. The scientists also discovered the more pot the young people smoked, the greater the abnormalities. And what I think is interesting about this, what your study, if I understand it correctly, showed is, unlike some things you might put into your body which could cause a reaction but don't cause any kind of long-term changes, what I understand you're saying is that this is actually causing permanent structural changes to parts of the brain. Well, it's causing structural changes. What we need, and, and we're seeing this in the context of people who are still actively using, what we need to understand is what does this mean down the road? How long-term are those structural changes? There's emerging data that uh, uh, clearly shows working memory function is impaired long-term by people who used in their teens and early 20s. Um, we need to understand if the motivation issues that we're seeing continue long-term, even after the, the stop, people stopping use. We just don't know. The important thing here is that it is happening when brain development is very active, and until we understand it, why are we allowing people who have poor insight anyway to damage their future? It sounds like what you're saying, and you've studied this, and I don't want to jump to conclusions, but it sounds clearly like you're saying that this is, that when people say, well, marijuana is entirely harmless, that you're not convinced that's the case. 
I would argue completely that uh, the data very convincingly argues that's not that that we need to be very careful about exposure to young brains. And um, I, the the, the uh, Canadian Medical Association saying that they would advise people uh, under age 25 not use it, they're right on target. I mean, the, the clinical data, the working memory data, the motivation reward data is very strong. Um, it's not as strong as, as climate change data, but it's only a question of time before we get there. And until we get there, why allow people who do not have good insight to completely damage their future. Dr. Hans Breiter from Northwestern University, really appreciate the time today and the insights. Thanks so much for the time. Thank you for giving us the time to talk about this with the public. These issues are huge, and the public has every right to get as much data about this and discuss and debate it, and you facilitate that debate. Thank you. Thanks very much. Um, look, it, it is a... Here's the thing that I always wonder, because I you hear people all the time, at least the proponents of easily accessible legal marijuana, and there are lots of them, you hear them say that this is, that A, Dr. Breiter, using him as the example because he just said it, is goofy for saying this is a gateway drug. Nobody nobody goes from marijuana to cocaine. That's what, I mean, a lot of people will say that, or to heroin or something else, that it's just, you either do, you use marijuana or you don't, but it's not really going to take you somewhere else. He argues otherwise. That's the first thing. But the second thing is they will argue that it is totally harmless. Now, I'm not a user of marijuana. I've never, here's the thing. Here's how naive I am. Here's how simple a man I am. I've never actually tried marijuana, nor do I ever plan to. It's just not something that's on my list of things to do. I don't have, quite frankly, enough functioning brain cells as it is that I can afford to lose any. So I'm not going down that road. But there are lots of people who would say it's... it's just it's just a fun recreational thing. It's it's no big deal. Well, here's the problem with that point. Scientists, the Canadian Medical Association, Dr. Breiter, who did this study, others are saying, hold on a second, hold on. There is actually evidence. There is science. There are data to suggest that this is not just completely harmless, especially in the brains of kids kids mostly, but up to age 25 who are still developing. Those parts of their brains are still developing. And if you are injecting, and I know you don't do it, you know what I mean, injecting, you're putting, if you're putting the chemicals from marijuana in, it's affecting it long-term. It's changing the structure of the brains. It's not entirely harmless is what they're arguing. And yet our federal government is saying, well, basically we don't want to have to prosecute people for having marijuana because we don't think it's that big a deal. And so we are going to legalize it and we're going to let you sort it out later on. Well, it sounds like, it sounds like doctors and scientists and researchers are saying that is a dangerous path to go down because we are seeing that this can cause damage. The government is saying, give it to 18-year-olds if they want it. The doctors are saying, no, don't give it to 18-year-olds. That's a recipe for disaster because, as Dr. Breiter said right as he was signing off, kids, 18-year-olds, are those who have the generally, especially boys, I was one of them, have the least capacity to sort things out and to make wise decisions. And now we're going to allow those people who actually have that least capacity to take something that affects the part of their brain that makes that even worse. 
I, I got to be honest with you. I find it, and I don't want to be a prude. I don't want to be naive, but it seems to me that we are restri- we're we're poo pooing the idea that maybe there is something a little more troubling and a little more dangerous about marijuana than the proponents would want us to argue for. That those who would say it's entirely harmless are getting all the airtime. And the doctors and the researchers and the scientists who are saying, wait a second, there could be some real problems here. They're getting shut down because they don't have the popular viewpoint. They don't have the viewpoint that is in line with the millennial view or whatever you want to call it. Maybe, just maybe, before we open up a legalized system of something, maybe we should have a little more information. That's all I'm saying. That's all they're saying, I think. Let's let's at least try to understand a little more about whether or not we are going to be causing harm to a segment of our population or allowing a segment of the population to harm itself. Let's at least figure this out before we just throw open the door. And if you're going to be the one to say, wait a second, if they want to harm themselves, harm themselves. You hear that all the time. Then why do we make people wear seatbelts? We have rules in this country to protect people sometimes against themselves. We do things to protect people from their own bad decision-making. And yet here we're saying, we don't really understand what this is going to do. We don't understand if this is going to be harmful. We don't understand if 20 years down the road, science is going to say, this was a horrible decision. We just want to throw open the gates and say, go for it and we'll figure it out later. Well, that to me doesn't sound like it's a very wise decision. Not yet. And apparently, according to Dr. Brighter and according to Dr. Blood, who's mentioned in this study and the Canadian Medical Association and many, many other people, they also say the same thing. Maybe we should hold off a little while till we figure this out before we throw open the gates and let a bunch of people who maybe don't have the ability to distinguish between good and bad decisions to actually become worse at that by affecting their brains. Anyway, clearly... I and they are not nearly as smart as our federal politicians who are trying to push this thing through. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. There is a, an exhibition going on right now until January 15th at the Art Gallery of Hamilton of Ken Danby's paintings. Ken Danby is one of the most well-known Canadian artists, painters of all time. He's, there's the group of seven, there's Robert Bateman, there's a bunch of others. There's Ken Danby. And Ken Danby's most famous work, unquestionably, you've seen it a thousand times, it's been up on dorm room walls and everywhere else, is a painting called At the Crease. It's a picture of a crouched goalie in front of the net. It was painted in the early 1970s, meticulously, technically perfect. It almost looks like a photograph, but it is it is a slice of Canadiana. And for years and years and years and years and years and years, as long as he was alive, Ken Danby always said that this was not anyone in particular. There were always beliefs that it was Tony Esposito or Ken Dryden. But here's what Ken, here's what Ken Danby actually said. He said, and so the guessing game has begun. Who's the goalie in At the Crease? I've been asked this question countless times over the years, and the reality is the goalie is not intended to represent any particular player, but simply the personification of a goalie. Well, that may be true, but it's not exactly right. Because while it may be meant to reflect the personification of a goalie, there was a person who was the model for that painting. 
And when Ken Danby died about almost a decade ago now, Wayne Gretzky spilled the beans to a reporter. There was a model, a goalie who modeled for this. His name was Dennis Kemp. Dennis Kemp joins me now. Dennis, thanks for doing this tonight. Oh, it's my pleasure, Scott. How in the world, of all the people who might have known this secret about you, how did Wayne Gretzky, I mean, if you're going to choose a hockey player, you want it to be him, but how did Wayne Gretzky know you were the guy behind this painting? Well, the year before I played in uh, Guelph, I was playing in uh, Brantford on a uh, Tier 2 team, Tier 2 Junior A, and I tore my hamstring at the beginning of the year. And so after about six weeks of recuperation, they said, yeah, you might as well go down to Junior B and get yourself in shape. And uh, Walter was the coach. (laughs) So uh, there I stayed, and I think Walter was quite happy to have me. But, uh, yeah, it was pretty neat. Uh, Walter and Wayne would come and pick me up. I just lived on the south side there beside the uh, North Park High School in Brantford. And off we'd go to uh, hockey games and uh, practices. And so I've got a couple of stories to tell, too, someday. Did you ever play? Were you ever on the ice with Wayne? Oh, all the time. Uh, Yeah, Wayne would come on the ice uh, uh, for the practices. And, you know, if there was action down at the other end, he'd uh, stay at uh, my end if there was no action there and take some shots. So uh, I kind of hold a little record there. Uh, <laughs> I, I kind of say to myself that, uh, you know, this little tyke, like he was playing for the uh, uh, the Steelers at that time. The, so Nadro- so. yeah, the Nadrowski Steelers. Yeah, I was going to try that name. <laughs> and... Uh, I said, well, this little guy might uh, go somewhere someday. I don't think I'm going to ever let him score. <laughs> that way you might remember me. And uh, so I think I hold the record for uh, taking the most shots uh, uh, against Wayne Gretzky and never allowing a goal. <laughs> well, that, that's a pretty good, if you're going to have a record, that's a good one to have. Yeah. Tell me, so, though, so so we know we know this painting. Everyone has seen the painting. How did this actually come to be, though? How did you get to be the guy who was posing for this. How, how, just walk me through how the story happened. Well, um, I was uh, out of practice, and uh, they asked me to stay afterwards. As it turned out, the other goalie, uh, Randy Simpson, hello, Randy, if you're listening, uh, was at a dentist uh, appointment. So I was the only guy that could uh, do the job, and I, I, was, I looked forward to it, and I stayed in the net, and... Uh, uh, Mr. Danby uh, came out with his tripod and took a uh, photograph, and as they say, the uh, rest is history. You know, I, but at the time, I was thinking, okay, this guy's going to a lot of trouble to get a, a photograph. I think I'm going to really look like I'm trying hard here and get a real low crouch. And as it turned out, uh, uh, perhaps that was the difference that made it so popular. I, but I certainly know that uh, Mr. Danby was... Uh, a genius at his craft. Where was the where was the rink? Where were you practicing that day? Do you remember? Oh yeah, it was right in the uh, main uh, Guelph uh, Memorial Gardens, I believe. Yeah, I think it was early November in '72. It was right after the Russia Canada series. Okay, all right, all right. Which which probably might explain why there was some so many people thought it was either Tony Esposito or Ken Dryden, since both of those guys were the goalies at the time, and they you know you kind of have a look of you could find either one of them in that pose. Yes, and if my memory serves me correctly, I think uh, Tony was using his glove hand. Uh, he was catching with his uh, right hand, I, so that would uh, rule him out. Sure, yeah. What did Ken Danby 
if he said anything. What did he say to you when he came on the ice to take the picture? Like, did you know what it was going to be for? Did you know who Ken Danby was? No, I had no idea whatsoever. And, you know, he just basically said, uh, get in a, like you're getting ready for uh, taking a shot. And uh, I just uh, tightened up the uh, strings on my glove hand and flooded everything I had into it. Just made it look like I was looking through uh, my defenseman's uh, legs, getting really low in there and trying to give him a good shot. Was that your normal stance? Or was no, it where you know, really... Once in... Sorry? No, go ahead. Was that what, I mean, I was saying, was that your normal stance or were you really giving it for that shot? Um, uh, yeah, I was... Uh, you know, pretending that I was taking a shot and, uh, you know, at times you have to get quite low and if you, like, it's a technique that I use where you could uh, actually see out to the blue line if you got low enough uh, to see the puck coming and, uh, but for the most part, in those days, it was uh, stand up, uh, cut down the uh, angle and growing up in Peterborough, I had a chance to watch Bernie Perrant with the uh, Niagara Falls Flyers and I always said, man, that guy's, uh, well, back in those days, I don't think he used man too much. But as a 12-year-old, I said, yeah, he's good. And I sort of always followed the uh, the best goalies, and his mentor was uh, Jacques Plante. So that was kind of the, if you can come out, which is really the, the uh, technique used by all goalies, is you cover the net as uh, precisely as you can, but uh, it's more in a butterfly style, of course, now. Well, I'm so glad to hear that you are a Bernie Perrant fan because he was my hero growing up as a kid. That was my favorite player, my favorite athlete. If That was the one guy. So, you know what? I'm feeling good already today having talked to you about this. You, you And by the way, the shirt that you were wearing, the sweater you're wearing, was that your game shirt? Because he never drew the anything on the front. It was a blank. At least it looks like it. You can't really tell from your angle. Was that a game shirt? What what uniform was that? Uh, that was a just a, a practice sweater that had no uh, crest on the front. I believe that... Uh, it was an old uh, GMC, um, a couple of years before that, uh, it was the GMC something or other 12 team. So you take this picture, uh, you pose for this picture, and then, I mean, you've got a hockey season to deal with and you've got life to go on with. Did you ever give it any more thought for the longest time or was it just, okay, I did that and fine? Yeah, no, I just uh, did that, and uh, the first time I became aware that it would become anything was when I opened the Hockey News the uh, following September to uh, look at the lineups of, uh, I was going to the Atlanta Flames camp, and uh, in uh, in that uh, Hockey News, the, the uh, advertisement of At The Crease was uh, in the publication. And what did you think? Well, I was kind of uh, shocked, and <laughs> I just thought, well, <laughs> this, is, uh, this is very interesting, and, uh, well, I hope it turns out well. But um, I've never been a sports memorabilia collector, and, uh, but Mr. Danby was kind enough to send us uh, three prints for the, uh, for the house and two grandparents, um, two, two uh, sides of the family, and a thank you letter. And, uh, what did he say in the thank you letter, roughly? Yeah, it was just, uh, thank you for your participation and um, good luck in the future. Huh. And so when, when you see this picture, where, do you remember where you were or were you alone when you first saw this? 
Yeah, I was uh, on the street uh, in Banff uh, working at Glen Sather's Hockey School there just at the end of August, uh, the 1st of September. And do you, when you first see it, did you tell anyone or you just keep it to yourself? Well, I'm, I, I can't remember if I uh, made a big deal of it at the time, but uh, I know that over the years, uh, you know, I played on many uh, rec teams and I, I just never mentioned it to uh, other than a, a few close friends. But as you get older, you don't mind saying, hey, you know, that was me. <laughs> did people believe you, though? The few people that you told, no. did they actually believe you? No, that's the thing is that, uh, you know, some people are uh, just looking for some kind of recognition that's not really has any basis. And um, I guess that might be part of the reason why I just didn't uh, mention it. But uh, thank goodness, thank goodness uh, somebody with some uh, stature, Mr. Gretzky, knew the whole story. Why do you think, did you, did you ever have a theory for why Ken Danby persisted in saying that it was nobody in particular, that it was just an anonymous, everybody could be it goalie? Did, did that? Did you ever figure out why that was? Um, well, uh, I, I don't uh, really, um, well, because it, uh, it just probably would it, would it, uh, says is that it wasn't uh, supposed to be Dennis Kemp or Tony Esposito or Ken Dryden. It was just uh, the personification of a, a goalie in, uh, in his position and doing his job. And one of the reasons why I think it um, pop- has, has been popular is it's uh, showing an individual in the arena of sports facing a challenge. And as you know, we all face our challenges every day, so they're I, I think that was part of the connection, and that it uh, looks so lifelike. And mm. You put it all together; it's um, it has it has uh, quite a few different levels, uh, as I, as you can well imagine. I've had a time to think about it, so yeah, it comes across as a a challenge uh, to an individual that uh, they uh, they have to face their challenges, and here's somebody doing it with uh, a lot of gusto. Dennis, those people that you did tell that actually did believe you that it was you, and I don't know how many people that was. What was the reaction then? What do they say when you say that was me, and they look and they go, really? Well, what do they say after that? Well, I think my uh, close friends uh, uh, you know, would, would say, wow, that's pretty neat. But anybody else, um, it just depends on their psychology. If they're kind of negative people, they'll say, oh, no, that's, uh, we know <laughs> you're just looking for attention. But... Uh, I, you know, I just uh, didn't think it was that important to discuss that it was uh, that it was uh, me. So you're too Canadian. If you were if you were from another country, you would have been out there making a buck off this every chance you could get. You're just too well, Canadian. A, a lot of people have said that. Why aren't you making any money off this? Why aren't you going and getting autographs and having people send in the print to you and you'll sign it? And and um, but uh, you know, it's come to a point where. Um, I, I'm trying to get a, a fossil mine going out here in Alberta, and I want to start up a not-for-profit because uh, right now it's really expensive for a lot of families to put their kids in organized hockey or skiing. It's just too much money, and uh, I'd like to uh, get a not-for-profit from an ammonite fossil mine in Lethbridge and uh, donate a portion, a large portion of the funds to a kid sport. Well, good for you. Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm getting older, and uh, 
I know there are substantial claims, and I certainly know the geology after all these years, and I know uh, I can do a lot of good, and it would be a huge disappointment if uh, it wasn't to take place. Do you, by the way, just before I move on, do you ever sign autographs on the painting? Have you ever? Uh, you know, I've, uh, I, I was um, playing on a, a doctor's team in uh, Lethbridge on a commercial league team as a forward, and uh, I'm sitting there in, in the bar afterwards beside the rink, and I said, you know, uh, Mike, that's, that's, that's me up there. He was the goalie, and he never believed me, and uh, that was the only one I've ever signed to this date. Really? Wow. That is, uh, well, you, I mean, do you, we just have a minute or two left here, but do you still own, how long did you, first of all, how long did you keep playing hockey, playing goal competitively after that, uh, after that? Uh, just, just in Guelph for that one year. And then I had a trial with the flames and, uh, um, I ended up, uh, the next uh, year playing uh, about six weeks in, uh, Dayton, Ohio for the Dayton gems. And actually I was just a fill in for a fellow that had broken his hand and, um, that was about it. <laughs> wow. Do you still do you still have any of the equipment that was in that port in the painting? Oh, I still own the mask. Do you? I do. That would be. I, I have to believe. You know. I mean, it, it. You didn't play long in the NHL, so you know it's not like some goalie's mask. That would have to be a really, honestly, a really valuable piece of Canadiana right now because of the significance of that painting. I would think. You know, I, I think I'm going to have to. Uh, attempt to, uh, uh, although I've been thinking a, a lot about it, I'd, I'd rather have it go to the Hockey Hall of Fame. Yeah, no, that's, uh, yeah, yeah, no, it's huge. I mean, it's a, that, that mask, honestly, I would argue that that mask is as famous as, as familiar as almost any other mask that anyone's ever worn. Maybe one or two others from NHL history for certain things, but that one's right up there. Well, yes, no, I, I, I think you're right. And, uh, but the, um, Sad part is I'm having trouble raising uh, funds for a not-for-profit, so I think I might be selling it uh, at a spring auction, at a hockey auction uh, out of Montreal. But um, I kind of have a feeling that by mentioning this, uh, it might help get the not-for-profit going, and uh, the mask in that case will be going to the Hockey Hall of Fame. That would be outstanding. And I assume at home you do have somewhere in your house, you do have a copy of the painting. Oh, absolutely, yes. Is still is still the same ones that can then be sent, or have you bought a bunch over yeah. the years? No, it's uh, the same one. It is uh, it is a remarkable story. I don't know how it was kept quiet for so many years, or at least kept, if not completely quiet, kept so understated that it took Wayne Gretzky to come out and, and tell a reporter this. I, I don't know how that happened, but uh, I'm glad that we actually know now, because there is a great story behind this, and I, I really appreciate you taking the time today to join us and talk about it. Well, thank you very much for having me on, Scott. It is, uh, that is Dennis Kemp. You can see him. Well, first of all, I posted his picture on Twitter. I'm going to do it again. He sent me an up-to-date uh, photo of him. But you can see the portrait of him that made him famous at the Art Gallery of Hamilton, the original, the real one, or you can see at the crease a million different places. Dennis, thanks again for doing this tonight. Really appreciate it. I appreciate it, too. Uh, go uh, go take a look at that stuff, Dennis, uh, Dennis Kemp. You won't see his name anywhere. And in fact, as I said, Ken Danby says it's not really Dennis Kemp. He doesn't say Dennis Kemp specifically. It's just, it's not a particular goalie. Well, it, it, it's representative of any goalie, but it is Dennis Kemp. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. Today was, as I said a few moments ago, the day that the Lumarsh Award was presented. It is the highest, I think everyone would agree, it's the highest award in Canadian sports. It's the Canadian Athlete of the Year. 
And in recent years, certainly, I mean always, but even more so it seems in recent years, the competition for this award has been ridiculous. The number of outstanding competitors, possibilities has been just through the roof. And so today, Penny Alexiak, the 16-year-old Olympic swimmer, four medals in Rio this summer, she won, and that was met with mixed reaction. Many people loved that. Some people said, not wrong choice. Was it the right move? Bubba O'Neill from CHCH joins us. Bubba, thanks for doing this tonight. Hey, Scott. Uh, Yeah, you're right. A variance of opinions every time we have the Lou Marsh Trophy. I mean... Well, let's let's back up for a second because we this is an award. This is a trophy that over the years really has spurred. This is this is one of the calmer, controversial, if you want to call it that, reactions. Because I can think back a few years ago when Larry Walker was playing for the Colorado Rockies, baseball player, and was arguably the best player in the major leagues, and he got beaten by Jacques Villeneuve and his race car. People went berserk. So this is this has a history. Some people went berserk. I, I went I, berserk. That was I, a ridiculous I, I, thing. Uh, no, I disagree. I thought he was the correct. <laughs> he was a world champion. I mean, for first ever Canadian. I mean, it's unbelievable. I mean, the worldwide recognition that Jacques Villeneuve still to this day gets uh, in, in certain areas of Europe is is is, is uncanny. I think people wouldn't know who Larry Walker is if I wouldn't know Larry Walker if I walked by him. Well, nobody would know Jacques Villeneuve if he didn't have a fast car. His pit crew should have got the Lou Marsh Award. <laughs> and then that, and really, and and that's why I kind of get a little edgy with these awards. Um, exactly, you're talking be- apples and oranges entirely. They become, they become so suggested, and, and you know, what's your favorite sport? And and it's funny now because now we're 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 such um, a diverse country, and not only in terms of male female, more so than the last twenty to thirty years. We're also better as Canadians at playing different sports. I mean, it was real easy to give the, the Lou Marsh Award, you know, let's say 20 years ago, because we were a dominant hockey-playing country. Except, you know what's funny about that answer, Bubba? You're correct in theory, but this award, if there has been a criticism of this award over the years, it's that we've had so many great hockey players and, relatively speaking, very few hockey winners. We've now had... Eight Canadian swimmers win the Lou Marsh Award. Nine Canadian hockey players win the Lou Marsh Award. Actually, that's nine different individuals. That's right. That's what I mean. But 13 different wins. So that still leads all sports. Absolutely, it does. But but when you look at hockey, you would think, oh, hockey must be miles ahead. Because you you, you think of the example. And again, I I wrote this one down because I knew it was out there. 1988. Mario Lemieux leads the NHL with 199 points. He's one off. uh, Only Wayne Gretzky ever got 200. It was a phenomenal year. And he loses the Lou Marsh Award to Carolyn Waldo, the synchronized swimmer. And if you thought the Larry Walker, Jacques Villeneuve thing made people crazy, this was the the height of it. So hockey has not always been rewarded in this award relative to the number of great players that there have been over the years. I think the balance there is comes every four years, Scott, is because I think the public's perception and and, uh, and especially the the opinions of many of that do the voting here, the you know a lot of veteran columnists and broadcasters believe that when it's the Olympics, the difference is Mario Lemieux, even in that incredible year that he had, could have an off night. 
when you're in the uh, in the Olympics, you can't have an off night, and your preparation for the last four years boils down to one single moment where you can't say that about someone that plays in the National Hockey League and accumulates points and accumulates accolades in terms of you know Stanley Cups or or Hart Trophy, where it's that one particular athlete. I mean, and here's the greatest example to me. Who knows? I mean, and, and a fellow colleague of mine here, I think she's done very well in terms of recognition by the public, in terms of the Canadian public, and I'm talking about Perdita Polita, uh, Felician. But what would have happened had she not tripped over the hurdle that year? She was the clear favorite. Absolutely. And in, the, and in the one moment, in the one moment during the Olympics and during a world championship, you're talking about a world champion here. Yeah, she won the world championship before that that year. And, and, and she was primed to become an Olympic hero and had one awful moment in a matter of seconds. And perhaps that might have lost the, if not the Lou Marsh Award, it maybe lost her the Bobby Rosenfeld Award as a female athlete of the year. So maybe that's the difference in why we, why there's maybe not as many hockey players as, as we would like to believe. And, and the fact that Olympic athletes get such respect when it comes to the voting in this award. You know, what's really interesting is that you have taken the case and flipped it that a lot of people have taken issue with regarding Penny Alexiak today. Those who don't support, don't agree with this. And listen, nobody that I've heard is dumping on Penny Alexiak. I want to be clear. There's even the people who don't agree with her winning. No one is saying, oh, come on, she's overrated, she stinks, and nothing. No, no one's saying that. What they're saying, you're saying she has to be great on this particular day because she only has a week to do her thing or a day to do her thing. And that's the exact case that a lot of people are making. Penny Alexiak, they would say, was great for one week of the year. Sidney Crosby, who by most accounts was the probably going to be the runner-up, was great for the NHL season. He was great for the playoffs. He was the Conn Smythe Trophy winner. He carried his team to the Stanley Cup. He led Team Canada to the World Cup, never losing a game. And he's had a terrific start to this season. So he had to be great for an entire year, not just for a week. That's the, that's the argument that is being made against Penny Alexiak in favor of someone like Sidney Crosby. You can't blame the athlete because the sport is certainly not in you know one of the big four major sports in North America. I mean that, I mean her sport is definitely a much smaller participation sport, which in some ways maybe makes it even tougher. Because in the National Hockey League, there's a there's a sample of of 750 odd hockey players. How many world class swimmers are there? I mean, before she even won it, we didn't even think we had a world class swimmer in this country. And at 16 years old, we may be talking about her with the Lou Marsh Trophy, maybe for a couple more years. We could. Um, absolutely, we could. Now, the the question, though, becomes, and it goes back to the whole idea of the hockey thing, because there were years when Wayne Gretzky was at the top of his game. Now, he won four times. He probably could have won it seven times. Honestly, Steve the Nash, Lou Marsh. Steve, Steve Nash only won once. Yeah, Steve Nash won once. There's, so the question becomes... Is this award truly the award for the best athlete or is it the, and this is the criticism again, or is it the award for the best athlete who fits with the narrative? Could you, like if Wayne Gretzky had won eight years in a row, there's a lot of good athletes that would not have won, but then people would have said, well, you only give it to hockey players. Do you think there's politics behind these choices? I don't think there's politics, Scott. I think, I think what it is is uh, I don't know. I mean, how do I put this in a nice way? 
<laughs> because I kind of agree with it, is that people put a lot of stock into the Olympics. And you have people that follow hockey. You have people that follow basketball. You have people that follow baseball. But for whatever reason, the Olympics, which come every four years in, in terms of a summer games or every two years if you want to be you know technical about it, the country opens their eyes. And people that are not even sports fans fell in love with Penny Alexiak. Yep. And that may not happen with a Sidney Crosby. That may not happen with a Wayne Gretzky. That may not happen with a Steve Nash. But the fact that the entire nation is watching, and I think that's why Sidney Crosby's goal in Vancouver will be his signature. Because not only were hockey fans watching, the entire country was watching. You're the right. The entire country became hockey fans for, it, it, for two weeks. And I think for Penny, who broke records, who won four awards, who helped out other teammates in, in you know, on 4x100s or 4x50 relays and relay races, she had the end. She was the first. If I remember correctly, she was one of the first to win gold in, the, in this Olympic Games. So her name became a household name amongst not just sports fans, but Canadians. You, I think that's a huge difference. You've done something remarkable today because you have actually argued and flipped the script on most of the criticisms, which I find really interesting that you've done this. And it's, and it's, it's a great part of the discussion. But let me give you an example. Mm-hmm. With what you said about how the eyes of Canada were on her, there was an argument, argument to be made that if Penny Alexiak had not won four medals at the Olympics, but had won four medals at the World Championships... Her name doesn't even get mentioned in this. Nobody cares. The fact that she won at the Olympics are what make her the champion. She could have won the same number of medals against the same field at a different time, but the Olympics are magical. The Olympics are what make her the Lou Marsh Award winner. I mean, would it not be comparable in, in some ways? Because remember, not everyone, there's, you know, there's been times where Usain Bolt has not participated in the World Championships. But we have a World Championships of Hockey that has a very high standard, and, and is in, I know it also competes with the Stanley Cup, but it doesn't get nearly the pub that Olympic hockey would possibly get. Not close. Not even close. Not close. And by the way, you mentioned about the Olympic, um, the, the voting and how the Olympics carry such weight. Eight of the, NAS, eight of the last nine Olympic years, an Olympian has won the Lou Marsh Award. The only exception was Joey Votto in 2010, when you really could not vote against the guy who was the National League MVP and had one of the greatest baseball seasons for a hitter that you could imagine. And, and, and ironically, that was the Vancouver Olympic year. If ever there was going to be one where you'd say it has to be an Olympian, it was 2010. Scott, here's the crazy thing. I've heard, I've heard from two people that, um, that voted that really, and now because we have different statistics and we can break down baseball statistics to to an even higher level than we did just a, a decade ago. Technically, Joey Votto's season this year was better than that year. But that speaks also to when you look at the list of the people who were up in consideration this year. So you've got Sidney Crosby. Of course, you've got Penny Alexiak who won. You've got Joey Votto. You've got um, uh, Milos Raonic who... Andre DeGrasse. Andre DeGrasse, Derek Drouin. You could go down the list. There had to be 10 legitimate candidates. Now, legitimate... Penny Alexiak, it was always going to be, I think, either Penny Alexiak or Sidney Crosby. I don't think there was anyone else who was going to win, but you had 10 candidates that you could talk seriously about. Uh, Tristan Thompson from the Cleveland Cavaliers would have been Absolutely. in that mix. Um, I, 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 my name, her name escapes me right now, but the, from the Paralympic Games, 
Um, Canadian. Oh, it'll come to me. Not she Chantal Pennyclerk. She wasn't. No, uh, no, no, no. This year. This year. Okay. She, yeah. She dominated the. Um, oh, it'll come to me. But keep on. Sorry. Well, no, and, and so the the other part about this, and I'm going through the the knocks that I've heard today about Penny Alexiak winning. And again, I, I don't think that anyone, I want to be clear, I don't think anyone is dumping on Penny Alexiak. It's just a great discussion. It's a great debate. The other one is swimmers in the Olympics have a huge advantage over most other competitors because of the sheer volume of races they're in. So Derek Drouin, the high jumper who won the gold medal in the high jump at the Olympics, Canadian guy, as we find out later with a broken bone in his back, only had one event that he was in. So he could only win one medal if he was at his absolute best, which he did. Penny Alexiak had numerous events, and she did very well, but should multiple medals actually tip the scales in favor of someone who has the chance to win multiple medals? What do you say to that? Well, I I mean, I think that's kind of a crazy argument because then, I mean, there's a higher margin for her to lose then. If there's, I mean, in the sense that there's more, you know, just there's more more opportunities. Yes, there's more opportunities to win medals because there's different, you know, if I call them disciplines in swimming. Well, that also means that there's also different people that are specialists in particular. There are people out there that are, you know, lousy in the freestyle but are amazing in the back, in the back or breaststroke. So for to be able to win four medals and be good in all disciplines, because let's be honest, I mean, you ask anyone that knows the sport better than you or I, uh, to be to be a, a, a breaststroker is a lot is is completely different than, than being a backstroker, and it doesn't it's not just being a good swimmer. The good swimmer can you know can do all, but I mean, can you beat the specialist in the in the in, the, in whatever particular particular discipline that you're actually racing in? That's difficult to to kind of say. All right, we got a couple of minutes here. Uh, let let me dive into one more thing because I think there's one out of everything that happened today. And everything that we've discussed, you said something, and I got to tell you, the only thing that I kind of now get my back up about, or I, at least I kind of wonder about, we have had Penny Alexiak win the Lou Marsh Award this year. Two years ago, we had Kaylee Humphreys win in bobsleigh. Two years before that, Christine Sinclair won in soccer. Four years before that, we had Chantal Petticlerk win uh, in wheelchair racing. Two years before that, we had Cindy Clausen win for speed skating. Clearly... Women are equal and holding their own and winning just as many Lou Marsh awards, Lou Marsh trophies as men. Why then do we still have a Bobby Rosenfeld award? <laughs> well, I mean, or, is that, why, that, or, or why do we have a Lionel Conacher award as well? Is, is that fair? Is Lionel Conacher award, I got to check, is it only for men? That's for only men. That's a, well, that's a, that's a Canadian, that's a male Canadian athlete. Well, then year. I'm, you know what, I, I had forgotten about Lionel Conacher entirely. But I, either one, I would say if you are the Lou Marsh Award winner, you must be either the Lionel Conacher Award winner or the Bobby Rosenfeld Award winner. There's no... Well, then it makes no, I mean, yes, you're totally, I mean, if there, if someone else say, um, uh, let's throw out another female, let's say a Brooke Henderson Wins, Another name that could have been in the mix this year, yeah, for sure. If Brooke Henderson wins the Bobby Rosenfeld Award, which she won last year, she repeats. I mean, she won a major this year and won a tournament. Um, she rose from the ranks of nowhere to number three, as high as number number two in the world this year. 
if she were to beat Penny Alexiak for that award, then then I think just then you need to refresh the, the voting public because then it makes no sense to me. How can you be the best athlete but right, not absolutely. the best female athlete? Yeah, I mean, so I'm I'm really hoping that the that there's no embarrassment here for for anyone that uh, Penny Alexiak does not win that award because if there is a difference, and that's obviously something that we would have to definitely cross reference through some research, if there's a difference. And in, in, in the male or female, depending on who won the, the Lou Marsh, then there's, there's a discussion to have that maybe we have too many awards. Who would you have voted for today? Penny Alexiak. No question? No question. And, 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 and again, it's all due respect to, uh, you know what, and again, this is one of those weird years because I'll be honest with you, you know, maybe when Kaylee Humphreys won, I wasn't sure if she was really the person that should have won. But I will say this about this year. There were, I would feel good about maybe four or five people winning. Oh, yeah. No, I. Does that make sense? Like, I would feel, oh, I would say, you know what? Well deserved. I, I would have had a hard time. I'll be honest with you. You know, a lot of people said Penny Alexiak was a shoe in and no brainer. Don't even have to think about it. And I disagree with that. I absolutely do because I think that. While she won those four medals, I do the one issue that I have with it, again, is the swimming thing that she had many opportunities. She did well. I'm not taking that away from her in any way. But I don't think that a sheer volume of medals trumps everything else. It doesn't trump all else. So Andre de Grasse, to me, is every bit as much in this conversation, even though he didn't win a gold. Look who he was up against. But you um, have to win. I think you need to win. I think you need. I think. Listen, I don't think there's been a case of a Lou Marsh Award winner who didn't win something. I, I didn't say he was going to win. I say he had to be very much in the discussion for absolutely, this. Absolutely, because he was one of the guys. I would if, if someone told me, "Hey, uh, Andre Degrasse won the Lou Marsh," I'd be like, "Oh, wow, that's pretty." I mean, for sure, he raced against the greatest sprinter of all time, of all time. And in many cases, finished right beside the man. And so that's why Sidney Crosby won. He won individually. He won as a team. I would have. It, it's not as clear cut as a lot of people are making it out. It was more difficult. And here's the other one that would have really thrown a massive, massive wrinkle into this whole thing. What if Milos Raonic had actually won Wimbledon? Then you suddenly have. You would have had fistfights in that room for the voting. Well, yeah. I mean, Wimbledon. I mean, then automatically that puts him in the category of uh, of a Mike Weir. Yep, yep. But it's I mean, still an Olympic like year. I mean, an Olympic year. Yeah. So you would have, you would have. I mean, the the voters were probably relieved more than anything else that he was not the winner of Wimbledon because they may still be in there arguing. Well, that may, and, and you know what? That may, that's an that. Hey, let's not run away from that one, Scott. I mean, Milos Raonic is young enough that that may happen. And it may happen on an Olympic year because Milos is, is, is cresting. Some of the old guards in the sport are starting to get older and uh, are not as effective. And Milos right now, up to number three in the world, it's just a matter of time before he wins a major award like that. Bubba O'Neill from CHCH, you will, uh, I'm sure you'll see him talking about this very thing on the newscast this evening. He talked about it earlier this evening at 6 o'clock. Bubba, thanks for doing this as always. A pleasure. A great discussion and uh, uh, again, hopefully we don't get any controversy with those two other awards. Well, well yeah, that would be. <laughs> I, I'm just waiting for someone who uh, who you know missed something entirely to win the Bobby Rosenfeld Award, and suddenly you know, and there's some weird voting thing. Remember, a number of years ago, 
I can't remember how many years ago it was, maybe a close to a decade ago now. The first year that Pinball Clemens was eligible for the Canadian Football Hall of Fame, he didn't get in. And the best response that we seem to be able to get, no one would admit it, but it seems like they kind of just forgot to vote for him. And he got in the next year almost unanimously, but it was that first year everyone seemed to be looking at each other saying, wait, what? He, what? He could have gone in? Oops. And so you hope that's not the case with Penny Alexiak. If you win the Lou Marsh Award, you should automatically win either the Bobby Rosenfeld or the Conacher Award then. There shouldn't even be a vote. That committee, I'm sorry, they don't get to go out for a nice dinner that year. Get together, have some cocktails, but you don't vote. If the person wins, if a female wins, she automatically wins the female athlete of the year as well. If a guy wins, he automatically wins the male athlete of the year. There doesn't seem to be any other way to do this. I, I want to quickly say something. You are wrong. She was a shoe in And that is not that does not in any way diminish any of the other athletes. But volume of medals does matter, especially when you are 16 years old. And you cannot you cannot take that away. She is a 16-year-old who won four medals was at the Olympic a, Games. So was she a shoe-in politically? Was, was was she going to win because of the fact that she, those things no, you just said? She is a when sh- I say a shoe-in, I'm saying when you compare her athletic accomplishments this year yes. to other people, she's not that she, much ahead of everyone but, else. But she is. Look, Sid is an incredible athlete, and this was probably his last chance to win the Lou Marsh Award, because let's be honest, there's there's another guy coming up behind him who's going to surpass him. Yep. Uh, Andre DeGrasse, that was amazing, but Bubba said it, you got to win. Uh, Derek Drouin, full credit to him, but one gold medal is not going to do it in an Olympic year. And that that may suck, and he did, it, he did great, but there wasn't... He didn't have anything extra you uh, know behind something? him. Derek Drouin made one colossal mistake. He didn't go for the record when no, he had no, extra no, no, chances. No, 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 way beyond that. Derek Drouin's mistake was being, I just talked to, when I was talking to, um, to Dennis Kemp and I said, you were too Canadian. Derek Drouin was too Canadian. If he had a broken bone in his back, which apparently he did, he should have made that known. If Derek Drouin wins a gold medal in high jump, which requires back flexibility and everything, if he wins a gold medal by in high jump with a broken back, his story becomes vastly more celebrated. Derek Drouin, as it turns out, did an amazing thing, but in an un, not a really noticed sport. All He needed to sell the fact that he was out there hobbling around on a broken back. Then he gets some consideration, but with one gold medal in a sport that not too many people were watching, probably not. That's probably, I mean, it's probably true. It probably was never going to happen. The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900, AM 900, CHML.